0: Let us pray. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament, Psalm 119, Verses 1 through 8. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes then I shall not be put to shame, having having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous ordinances. I will observe your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The word of the Lord.
1: Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So listen now for the word of God to the church on this Lord's Day. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving according to human inclinations. For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each, For we are God's servants, working together. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. So in the gospel, there's a pretty clear distinction between behavior that is childlike and behavior that is childish. To love like a child, to hope like a child, to have the innocence of, and faith of a child, these are things that Jesus celebrates. By contrast, to be childish is not really a compliment. It suggests that conduct may be immature or silly or foolish. And as much as Paul loves the church in Corinth, and as much as he surely knew that there were really wonderful childlike Aspects to their fellowship, it seems a little clear that he was also seeing some childish behavior in the congregation. I could not speak to you as spiritual people, Paul said, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul was saddened by some unhealthy behaviors he was hearing about, factions and jealousies, quarreling, the following of human patterns based on fear instead of Christ-like patterns based on faith. Paul had hoped the Corinthians would be ready to step up and take on some meteor concept, concepts, but he could tell that they weren't quite ready for anything really beyond spiritual pablum. Now, Paul was not wrong to equate quarreling and fussing with the actions of young children. Just ask any preschool teacher, any elementary school teacher, they will confirm that spats and struggles are a natural part of learning and growing. For example, one teacher describes a very familiar scene, a scene that we can relate to at least, where Sasha, who is two, is standing in the middle of the preschool classroom just absolutely screaming. And his friend Ryan had just yanked a toy fire truck from his hands. Now, the teacher sees all this unfold and she gets the two toddlers together. And with a calm but firm voice, she says, Ryan, Sasha is very angry that you grabbed the fire truck. And then turning to Sasha, she says, Sasha, tell Ryan, you want the fire truck. Now, Sasha's face was already red. Now it gets about as red as that fire truck. And he doesn't tell Ryan, he yells it, want truck. <laughs> and the teacher continues her approach. She's trying to name the emotions, she's trying to name the feelings, she's trying to name the wants and the desires and the fears. Eventually, Ryan grudgingly drops the fire truck seemingly convinced that he will get to play with it once Sasha has had his turn. This teacher knows that two-year-olds will often dig their heels in during conflict, and she knows that they're just trying to navigate new and scary feelings, new and scary feelings that they have power over some things but not over all things. So the teacher uses the conflict as an opportunity for both of them to grow, for Sasha to learn to assert himself, using words to express how he feels, and for Ryan to learn that he does not have to be a bully to get what he wants. Another teacher describes a quarrel that took place in another classroom with some older children. Two four-year-old boys, Dana and Will, have found some cardboard boxes, and they have decided that they're going to create a space rocket with them. Jamie, who is three and a half, thinks it looks like great fun, and he finally gets up the courage to ask these somewhat older boys, can I play astronaut too? And Dana immediately responds, no, weirdo. You're not strong enough to build a big rocket. And angry with his feelings, very hurt, Jamie responds by kicking over a box and before running off to tell the teacher, adds, And you can't come to my birthday party. (laughs) Now, many of the preschool squabbles that I've seen with my own eyes have to do with status, particularly who gets to be the line leader. Now, classes usually rotate that privilege so every child can get a turn being at the front of the line and leading the class off to wherever it is that they're going next. But what I would often notice is when chapel uh, is over uh, and it's time for the class to get up and line up and walk back to the classroom, there's usually a little testing that goes on. Someone who knows it's not their day but kind of wishes it were their day kind of sidles up to the front of the line, um, and mayhem ensues, and then the teacher has to jump in and kind of referee the challenge, and it's all part of growing up, all part of figuring out who we are, how we're supposed to be, going through these little tests and these little bumps, and let's face it, we adults have pretty much the same kinds of squabbles even as we grow up, and it was happening in Corinth. Camps were forming. Power was at stake. People were fussing. There were questions about how communion should be served, about how much food should be left for the people who came late, about which kinds of spiritual gifts were most important. Speaking in tongues was primary among them. It was about who would be considered the spiritual elite in that community. In some, a lot of them, all of them, wanted truck, (laughs) and they were struggling over their sense of belonging, too, the need to feel welcome and at home in the church, and people who were being left out wanted to play astronaut, too, but they were literally being told that they were not strong enough, spiritually, that they were not strong enough. So behind all of these squabbles, each and every one of them was fear. Fear of being excluded, fear of losing power, fear of being told that they do not belong. One of my seminary professors, Frances Taylor Gench, once told us a story of her time on the faculty at Gettysburg Seminary. Those of you who are uh, military history buffs will remember that there was a seminary ridge at the Gettysburg battlefield. So the seminary is right there. And she happened to be watching a group of students from the seminary play flag football on Seminary Ridge. And maybe it was the fact that it was taking place on the site of a terrible battle in our nation's history. But that flag football game quickly became a war. Things started getting chippy, you know, as they say, and penalties were flying, and they were becoming more and more flagrant, and finally the tension in the game erupted between two pretty big guys, one from each side, and one of them rushed up to the other guy with fire in his eyes, and he knocked the football out of his hands, and he yelled as loud as he possibly could, I will never again take communion from your hands, and then he turned around and marched away, (laughs) and that was it. They were seminary students, after all. But her story is a reminder that even in the church, even when we are supposedly more mature, we are not immune to childish quarreling. Even the disciples of Christ fought about who got to be the line leader. And while we may use the language of church in the fights that we are still kind of having today, deep down those fights are still about fear fear about being treated unfairly, fear of losing control, fear of being told we do not belong, that we should just stay off to the side and let the other people do the important work. Now, it's not a hard case to make what I'm making. Frankly, I'm much more intrigued with what Paul seems to be saying about spiritual maturity If quarreling and factions are signs that we are still infants in Christ, then what does maturity look like, especially for a disciple of Jesus Christ? And the key indicator for Paul, the key focus for Paul, seems to be humility. To become mature is to grow in humility. Apollos and Paul were both power centers in the community, but Paul doesn't really want to talk about that. He doesn't want to make very much of that for either one of them. What then is Apollos, he says? What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but it was God who did the work. It was God who gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Paul says, but only God who gives the growth. For Paul, a key sign of maturity is being humble, humble about our own places in God's work, humble about our own roles, about our own gifts, about our own wisdom, even about our own history and our own experience. We have to remember that God is the one who is making things happen and has always been the one who is making things happen and that really we are just lucky to be part of it at all. In the 6th century, Benedict of Nursia began a quest for true union with God. It was both an interior quest and a quest that was played out Externally in his communities, he would go on to found and lead a number of monastic communities, all of which, in one way or another, followed the path that has become known as the rule of St. Benedict. This monastic rule, which pointed the way for countless monks and had an indelible uh, imprint upon Western Christianity, contains, still to this day, practical guidelines for Christian living. And all of those guidelines really do rest upon the foundational discipline of humility, which Benedict saw as the opposite of sinful pride. He devoted all of chapter 7 of that rule to humility and particularly to the teaching of Jesus in Luke fourteen eleven, when Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself or herself shall be humbled. But the one who humbles him or herself Will be exalted. And is in what is perhaps the first 12 step program in history, Benedict lays out in that chapter seven 12 rungs, which form a ladder to humility. And in order to illustrate the rigorous way that Benedict sought to instill humility in himself and in his monks, I will describe for you just the first few rungs of this ladder to humility. The first step, he said, to humility is to consciously obey all of God's commandments in Scripture, never ignoring them, always holding God in one's heart. So we get all of that right, and then we can move to rung number two. Rung number two is achieved when we do nothing, do nothing according to our own will and everything in pursuit of the will of God. When we think nothing about pleasing ourselves and only about pleasing God. Rung number two, how are we doing so far? Step three is achieved when we obediently submit to a superior in the imitation of the Lord just as a monk would submit to an abbot when we accept completely the authority of a spiritual mentor trusting that God has sent that person into our lives and submitting to that leadership willingly and without reservation. And step four is achieved. When we, having become so obedient to God's will, are willing to patiently and quietly endure everything that may be inflicted upon us. It doesn't matter if it's it's unfair. It doesn't matter if it's absurd. It doesn't matter if it is painful or completely beyond our understanding. It doesn't matter if it hurts our family. Step four is being willing to simply stand there and take it, endure it, and accept it without a struggle, never complaining, never tiring, never giving up. That's rung number four. (laughs) One third of the way there. Do you need me to go on? (laughs) I think Paul may be right. Right. We aren't ready to swallow that. We remain, in so many ways, infants in Christ. And that can be hard for us to hear, but Paul does not say it in order to beat us up or to shame us or to put us in our place or even to write us off. Paul does, however, want to point us down the road and set our feet on a path that can lead to maturity. Paul understood, as Benedict understood, as we have to understand, that a key mark of spiritual maturity is humility. The realization that it's not about us, it's not about what we want, that God is in control, and we are not. And like the Corinthians, we are still trying to grow into that high and lofty vision of the church. And we cannot force this growth. God has to give that growth. All we can really do is to keep showing up with open hearts and keep doing our best to do the work that God has given us to do. And we can at least try to follow Christ in the way of humility. We can at least try to be sharing and generous and share the fire truck. We can try to be welcoming and open and let other people play astronaut with us. And I know I'm beating these metaphors to death, but you know what I'm saying. Paul is pointing to a day when people who are genuinely and authentically working on their own humility and their corporate communal humility might wake up one day and realize that they aren't fighting about who gets to be the line leader anymore because they are all so grateful that they get to stand in God's line at all. Now, if we set our minds on that kind of maturity, if we earnestly desire that kind of humility, we will be on the way to a new and refreshing freedom in our life together. And we will be able to see much more clearly that we're all knit together in the work that God is doing. And we'll appreciate that while we all have different gifts, while we all have different aptitudes, while we have varied skills and things to offer, that all of those blessings are being drawn together in the net of the Holy Spirit so that they might serve a common purpose in the love of Christ. The one who plants, the one who waters have a common purpose, Paul writes, for we are God's servants working together. As we seek that common purpose, as we try earnestly to work together with humble servant hearts, Paul leaves us with an image of hope, one that reminds us that even as we are toiling away, the God who is really at work in our community is present. And it's the same hope that God gave to nearly every single one of the prophets of Israel. It was a vision that when God is finished with us, on that great day, we will be like a vineyard heavily laden with grapes. We'll be like an arbor of trees planted by still waters. We'll be like a field, growing and producing at full capacity, bursting at the seams with healthy fruit. We, Paul says, are God's field. We are together God's pleasant planting. We're a garden where God is clearly at work, and it's muddy and messy at times. There are parts of it that are overgrown with weeds, but the soil is good because God created it to be good, and God is doing something here in you, in me, and in every church like us all across the world. Paul's hope for the Corinthian church is the same hope that Christ still has for you and for me and the church today. The hope that God's people may work on it so much that they get to a point where we're not worrying so much about who gets to plant the seeds, who gets to hold the watering can. Who gets to eat first at the table of the Lord? Christ imagines healthy communities in which people may have very different gifts and styles, but everyone is still welcome at the table, where no one is viewed with suspicion or fear, where everyone is appreciated for the gifts that they bring, and everyone is humbly and gratefully focused on the amazing growth that God continues to bring. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't walk to a church like that. I would run to it. So let that be our vision. As infants in Christ, as children of God, as people with common purpose, as God's servants working together. May we seek that central discipline of humility. And open our eyes to the work that God can do through and in us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.